Great is our God. He is so great, isn't he? And the Bible says, you are great and greatly to be praised. And we need to ratchet it up a little bit in the area of worshiping the Lord. I'm not talking about being louder or rowdier. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being real. Being people who worship the Lord with a whole heart, not just sort of casually. There's nothing casual about our relationship to God. It's a personal, intimate relationship. There are some passages of Scripture, some books of the Bible, that I really don't want to leave. And you've probably noticed that over the years. And one such passage is the passage that we've been looking at lately in the book of Galatians. We've been studying the entire book of Galatians for several months now. But the fifth chapter and the sixth chapter, they're just so full and so indicting in terms of our own walk with the Lord. But at the same time, they keep drawing me back, these truths. And they have relevance to all of our lives. Today we continue in the sixth chapter of the book of Galatians. If you want to find your way there, I'm going to make a few preliminary remarks beyond those which I've already made. And then we're going to read the text and let God's voice be heard as we look into the passage of Scripture. He's a do-gooder. I can never remember hearing anyone say such a thing except in derision. It's a negative thought, isn't it, to be called a do-gooder? Do-goodism is treated with disdain in our culture. But God has quite a different take on doing good. In Acts, the 10th chapter, and the 38th verse, this is what the Bible says. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and He went about doing good. It was Jesus' M.O., filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, moved by the Spirit to do good. Consequently, it would be incumbent upon you and me, if Christ lives in us, that that would be a feature, if not the most prominent feature of our lives as it relates to other people. I have two dear brothers in Christ in this church who came to know Jesus personally back in the 1970s through a ministry of the Roman Catholic Church called Life in the Spirit. And their lives are radically rearranged, and the fruit is obvious in their lives. We are called to life in the Spirit. But life in the Spirit is not simply something that is to be experienced in isolation. There is an experiential characteristic for sure associated with our life in the Spirit. But to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, this is something that has public ramifications. It has impact on the lives of people who are touched by the Spirit through the one who has life in the Spirit. It's very practical. We're going to see exactly how practical that is as we look at this passage of Scripture together today. Now, here's some other things the New Testament and the Old Testament have to say about doing good. In Psalm 37.3, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord and do good. The implication is clear, is it not? If I trust in the Lord, I am going to do good. And not 
doing good in order to make myself right with God, but doing good because it's the natural outgrowth of the life of the Spirit in me. If the Holy Spirit lives in me, He's going to do good. We're going to see in just a moment that the word which is translated good in the text which we're considering today is actually a sister word of one of those nine traits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, goodness. The word goodness, that word is the word which is derived from the word which is translated good in verse 10 of chapter 6. We're going to look at that together this morning as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 Paul writes these words, God created us, you, me, in Christ Jesus to do good, which he planned in advance for us to do. And he gives expression to what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Thus enabling us, by the way, to fulfill our intended purpose. Why were you created? Why was I created? We were created to glorify God. And we glorify God by doing those good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God wants us to do good. And to do good in the right way. So that people will be attracted to the Lord. And may I say what I'm sure you've already considered this morning, if not before, that the way I let my light shine in such a way that it glorifies my Father in heaven by doing good works is I do it in the Spirit. In other words, I walk by the Spirit. I walk by the power of the Spirit. I must be filled with the Spirit of God. And when a person is filled with the Spirit of God and does those good things which God has established for her or him to do, the result is that God gets the glory. And that's what we hope for in our lives. Well, with that as introduction, let's begin with the text itself. Reading verses 1 and following. Brethren... Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And especially to those who are of the household of God. What exactly does a life of doing good look like? Well, first of all, this passage teaches us that by doing good, I will, among other things, 
be committed to restoring any brother or sister in Christ who has been caught in a trespass as he or she has sought to walk with the Spirit. What does it mean in this passage, verse 1, when we are told to restore a person who is caught in a trespass? The word translated restore actually means foundationally that we are to put something back in its original state. It is the idea that's used by some medical writers in the New Testament era to describe the setting of a broken bone, which has obviously been broken, or the placing of a joint, bone that's out of joint, back into the joint. It's the idea of putting something back to its original state. This is used by both Mark and Matthew as they talk about Jesus calling Peter and James and John to follow him to fish for men. In Mark 1.19, the Bible says, While they were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, they were cleaning and mending and folding their nets, putting them back in the proper order so when the next day of fishing began, everything would be ready to go out and do the best they possibly could do in terms of netting fish. It's the idea of equipping the person or the thing for its original purpose. So when we are called to restore a brother or a sister who has fallen off the pathway of walking with the Spirit, we're to do it with this in mind. We're to do it constructively, and we're wanting to help that person to get back on track in his or her following of the Lord. The one who is caught in a trespass. We have seen in the fifth chapter of Galatians, verse 7, that Paul says to the Galatian believers, You were running well, but what's happened? The believers there were running well. We studied what had happened there. You'll do that on your own. We don't have time to go into that again. But this individual who is caught in a trespass was running well. And then all of a sudden the person was caught. And that word suggests by surprise, caught by surprise in a trespass. It's a picture that is painted by some Users of the language of the New Testament, not in the New Testament, but contemporary to the writing of the New Testament, of a small game animal caught in a snare, caught in a trap. The animal had no anticipation of being caught, minding its own business, and all of a sudden it's caught and it's trapped. Now, make no mistake about it. When I sin or you sin, we do it by our own volition. Nobody can make me sin. But have you ever had the experience when you are tooling through life and all of a sudden you're surprised by a huge temptation? It surprised you in the fact that it was there, but it surprised you because you felt a draw to it and you thought, there's no way I would ever be able to be trapped that way in sin. Has that ever happened to you? That's the idea of this individual who's walking by the Spirit and all of a sudden is trapped. Also, this word is used in John chapter 8, verse 4, about the woman caught in adultery. It says she was caught. And that, obviously, is a statement of the circumstances. This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery itself. She was caught. 
And we just need to understand that when a brother or sister is caught in a trap of sin, we have to restore that person. It's incumbent upon me. If I'm going to do good and you're going to do good, that will be part of our ministry in following the Spirit of God. Now, there is a special exception, I guess you would say here. It's not exceptional in the sense that it excuses any of us, but we need to look at it again. Look at verse 1. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any trespasses, trespass, rather, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What does that idea of spiritual mean? It's a word which means literally of the Spirit. You who are of the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Who would that be? Well, we know if we know Jesus Christ, how does He dwell in us? By the Spirit, right? In Romans 8 9, the Bible says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that one does not belong to Christ. If you are what is called a Christian in the real sense, you are indwelled by none other than the Holy Spirit of God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We know that to be true. But a person who is spiritual in the sense that is mentioned here, especially in the context of the teaching of Paul in the book of Galatians, that person is a person who is led by the Holy Spirit. That person is a person who walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. That person is a person whose life reflects the fruit of the Spirit. That person, if we were to go to the book of Ephesians, is a person who is filled by the Holy Spirit, which means controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And you say, well, I am glad I'm not filled with the Spirit because I don't have the responsibility to go and restore one who's caught in a trespass. Well, that's not the way to look at it. I hope you know that the normal Christian life, the life that is depicted in the Scripture of a person who is following Christ is the Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, fruitful life. And if you and I settle for anything less, we are subnormal. Do you want to be subnormal as a follower of Jesus Christ? There's just something in my own flesh, really, that rises up and says, I don't want to be just mediocre. What about you? Do you want to be just average in your life? Especially in your Christian life. And this is not about competing with somebody else. It's about being committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. When I set apart Christ as Lord in my heart, that is another way of saying I am filled with the Spirit of God. And therefore, I have the responsibility... When I see a brother or sister in Christ who has been caught in a trespass by surprise, maybe caught in the act of the sin, I have the responsibility, if I'm going to do that which is good while I have an opportunity, I'm going to reach out to that person. And I'm going to do it in a certain manner. According to this text, I'm going to do it with a spirit of gentleness. Interestingly... This word gentleness is the one that is used in the categorizing of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's the identical word that is employed by the Holy Spirit in Paul in chapter 6, verse 1. 
And this word is a word which carries with it the idea of the opposite of harshness. The opposite of a condemning attitude. You see how important it is that people who do this very important work of restoring are people who are filled with the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit. If you are one who chomps at the bit to face off with a brother or sister who's in sin, then you're not the right person to do the restoring. You have too much of an interest in setting people straight. That's only for those who are gentle. And let me just give you what I believe happens before a person gets to this point. Because the word gentleness... Remember how it was used outside the New Testament? It was used to describe a wild stallion which was broken by his trainer. And that stallion still had all the power that the stallion had prior to being broken. But now that the stallion is broken, all that power is under the control of the rider of the horse. And therefore, it is a gentle Beast, as it were. And what we know about ourselves is before we gave our lives to Christ, there was a lot of wildness in us, right? Carl Sandburg said it this way, the great literary giant of last century. He said, there is a zoo inside of me. And by saying that, what he was saying is there's something wild inside of me. It's not just seemingly one thing. There's a lot of wild things in me and it needs to be tamed. The entire zoo needs to be tamed. And that's what Christ has done. When we understand what the Bible says, that blessed are those who are gentle, broken. We have to be broken. The people whom God really uses, I believe, to restore others are people who have come to grips with their own sin. And they have been broken by the reality of their own sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with this beatitude, blessed are the, those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit? Here's another way of saying that beatitude. Blessed are those who know the level of their spiritual bankruptcy. The next beatitude says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you know what happens when a person really knows that he or she is a sinner? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Do you remember when you came to the realization that you were a sinner and you understood what your sin cost the Lord to die on the cross for? And you understand what it does to the Father? You have the heart that David expresses in Psalm 51 when he says to God, Against you and you only have I sinned. Have you felt the weight of your sin the convicting work of the Spirit. And when you do, some of you, if not most of you who have had that experience, have had tears which followed because you recognize the level of your offensiveness to God. And then the good news was you received the grace of God. Isn't that awesome? But this is what I suggest. People who are spiritual are people who are of the Spirit. They're no longer of the flesh. They are people who have yielded to the Lord. And consequently, they understand those people who have fallen into sin. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in this matter. He said, Think of me as a fellow patient in the same hospital who, 
having been admitted a little earlier, could give you some advice. And the advice is, get right with God. You're traveling a treacherous pathway. It's a destructive way you are traveling. You've gotten off the path that God has established for you. And get back on it because it is a way that may seem right to you, but the end thereof is the way of devastation and death. So we're to restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Years ago, you remember what happened with Jim Baker. Some of you remember the name Jim Baker. Some of you don't have any recollection, and it's perhaps better that you don't. But he built quite an empire. He was a multimillionaire. He built trusting believers out of no telling how many millions of dollars. He went to prison. He was disgraced. He lost his wife. He lost his ministry. He lost his reputation. His, his is a name that will always be associated with shysterism and conning in the annals of Christian history. He was in prison, serving his term in prison one day. He was very low. You can imagine how he would have felt. He was cleaning toilets. And one of the prison keepers came and said, there's someone here to visit you. And he stood up. He wondered who it would be. He had not expected a visit. He was in the toilet area. He looked at himself in the mirror and he said, what a sad sack I am. Should I even go out and visit someone? I have a hard time even facing someone in this situation. But he pulled himself together and he went out and When he went into the visiting room, it was just he and one other person. And to his great surprise, Billy Graham had come to see him there in the prison. And so as he tells the story, Jim Baker says that Billy Graham embraced him and loved him in the name of Christ. The man, Billy Graham, understood what it means to be broken because of his sin. We don't know what... Billy Graham's sins have been, but they've been there. Be sure of it. He's had his problems, just like everybody else has. In the book of 1 Timothy 5.24, the Bible says, Some men's sins go before them to the place of judgment. Other men's sins follow them there. Jim Baker's went before him. Martin Luther makes this statement in his great commentary on the book of Galatians. He says, when we see a man in such a situation who is caught in a trespass, we should run to that person or woman. We should lift him or her up. We should speak, he says, sweet words to that person. And then we are to embrace that person with motherly arms. We are to be gentle with the person, not excusing the sin. Jesus, remember when he spoke to the woman caught in adultery? Ask her the question, where have your accusers gone? They're not here. She says, they've all gone. And Jesus says, I'm not condemning you either. But he didn't stop there. What did he go on to say? Go and sin no more. We do no one any favor if we gloss over 
the sin that they have committed and the seriousness of the sin. But if we go in the Spirit of Jesus Christ and we are men and women who are filled with the Spirit of God, therefore full of the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to be gentle in the way in which we relate to such people. We're to restore one in a spirit of gentleness. But something that does not catch our eye when we read it in English is apparent when we read it in the original language. This word translated restore is a present tense command, which means keep on restoring such a one who is caught in a trespass. Now, what's that all about? It's about this, that restoration typically is a process. There needs to be some healing for the one who is caught in the trespass. There has to be investment beyond the confrontation and the leading of the person back on the path to follow the Lord. What is your response when you learn about someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ Christ, who is caught in a trespass? Do you have much experience of doing good by restoring such a one? Do you have any experience? If not, why not? Well, one reason is we just don't know much about each other because we don't want to know for fear that we'll have to do such things to get involved with people. We've got too much else to do. Or perhaps if you do know, you've stood by and done nothing. You've ignored it. You've said, in effect, it's not my business. Well, I beg your pardon. Remember when God came to Cain after Cain had murdered his brother Abel and he asked him, where is your brother? And what was Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are. And so am I. Yes, was he. And so are we. We are our brother's keeper. Look at the way in which this verse begins. The sixth chapter, brothers. We are brothers. Do you really understand what that means? The word brother itself literally means from the same womb. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And to the extent that we don't really buy into that intellectually and or relationally is we don't believe the Word of God. He is our Father. A Father suggests a family. He chooses who's in His family. We have no choice in the matter. He chooses. And we are called to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. Maybe you condemn a person who's called. Serves him right. She made her bed, let her lie in it. That's not the spirit of gentleness, is it? Maybe you gossip about them in a very discreet and spiritual way, I might add. You come to another sister in Christ or brother in Christ and you say, Have you heard about brother so-and-so? No. And if your approach was such a question, I think a good thing to do is just say, And I don't want to hear about it. Because that cuts off the possibility of gossip, which is something that God hates. But here's the way it goes in some cases. I want to give you some details so you can pray more effectively for this brother or sister in Christ. That's just a pretense for gossip. That's not the way we go about this process. We're to follow the 
teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go to him privately. And if you win your brother, it's awesome. But if the brother doesn't repent, you take one or two more people with you who are spiritual and you do the same thing. And if the brother still doesn't repent, you take it to the church. You let the church know it. And it's incumbent upon the members of the body of Christ to reach out in love and gentleness to draw that brother or sister back in. And if that doesn't work, you dismiss the person from the church. Not for revenge purposes, but with a hope that that act will bring the person to restoration. Look, we're not about isolation in this matter of church discipline. We're not about amputation. We're about restoration. That's what the Word of God says. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I need to recognize, as do you, when we find ourselves faced with this ministry mandate to do good to our brothers in Christ who have strayed away off the path, to recognize our own weakness and our own tendency. It calls for humility on my part and your part. We have to get the log out of our own eye before we do that delicate work of speck removal from a brother or sister's eye. It's very delicate, but very important. So here's one way that we do good. What is it? We restore a wandering brother or sister caught in a trespass to the path of walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Here's the second thing that comes from the passage. It's by bearing one another's burdens. Take a look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The word translated burdens here is a word which means a crushing weight. It would be like a huge boulder on the back of the individual who is carrying this weight. The question is raised, in my mind at least, as to the type or types of burdens that Paul is writing about. The context would demand, I believe, that the primary idea is the burden of the failure. Now think about it. You, perhaps today, are walking by the Spirit. I hope you are. Walking by the Spirit, trusting the Lord, full of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, you find yourself caught in a trespass, and you do something that you never would have dared to think about doing, but you fall into the temptation, you sin, and you're miserable as a result. That's awful. David, we know, fell into such a trap, committed adultery, committed murder. And in Psalm 38, 18, listen to what he says. This is amazing. It's a prayer to the Lord. He says, I confess my iniquity to you. I confess my iniquity. Did he come clean with the Lord? Yes, he did come clean with the Lord. But then he says the next thing, which is a little startling. I am filled with anxiety because of my sin. I cannot tell you, when I sin, I am full of anxiety. 
And David had that experience. And if you walk by the Spirit, it's so out of character for you to fall into the trap. But when you find yourself there, you're thinking, I'm just so miserable. And that's where a person who has a spiritual bent goes and bears the burden. This crushing weight. The devil has won a victory temporarily in the life of that person. And now that the person has confessed the sin and repented of it, the devil is not finished. This is what the devil does. We know his M.O. is to be the accuser of the brothers. He accuses us day and night, the book of Revelation 12 says. He is busy about accusing us. And if he cannot get us to fall into the trap of sin, what we can be sure of that he will do, he will hammer us and hammer us and hammer us after and bring back to our memories over and over again that sin. And we need to go to a brother who is in such a position of failure and share with him or a sister and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you confessed your sin? Then He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you repented of your sin? Well, the Word of God tells us that he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and renounces them, repents of them, will do what? Will find mercy. We need to bring the Word of God into play when we're talking to our brother or sister who has been trapped in sin. But this idea of burdens, in a secondary sense, is, I believe, broader than simply the idea of one who's been caught in a trap, a trespass, and has taken the bait that has been set there in the trap by the devil. Let's think of some of the ways that people are burdened. We have probably 300, 350 people in the room right now. I would be surprised if not at least a fourth of the people present have some sort of burden in your life. It may be excessive worry. It may be what we just got through talking about, guilt. It may be grief over a loss in your life of a relationship to death or divorce or some other way. It may be a child who is a prodigal. It may be a sickness that you're wrestling with. It could be any number of things. You think about the burdens in your own life. They're crushing weights, are they not? And what are we called to do? We who are spiritual are to express our spirituality and our walk with the Spirit by doing good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We need to be on the lookout to minister to people who are in such situations and care for them in their loneliness, in their depression, in the things that weigh them down like doubt. We need to do that. We're, according to this passage of Scripture, to keep on bearing one another's burdens. Here again, it's a present tense command. It's not an occasional thing. This is to be our lifestyle, to bear one another's burdens. Why? Because the text of Scripture tells us a little later in the passage of Scripture that by doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ in the second part of verse 2. And what is the law of Christ? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We love each other. And remember, 
that Peter writes, and he knew about failing the Lord. Did Peter know about failing the Lord? What did he do when his eyes met the eyes of Jesus in the courtyard of Caiaphas when Jesus was the victim of a kangaroo court? What did Peter do when his eyes locked in to the eyes of Jesus? The Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 4. Love covers a multitude of sins. So we bear a burden and we show love to a brother or sister who is weighed down. And you might say, well, I thought the Bible says we're to cast our burdens on the Lord. And He will sustain us. Yes, it does. In Psalm 55, 22, it's stated a little differently by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7. We're to cast all our cares on the Lord, for He cares for us. Yes, that's true. But have you ever seen a Bible walk off a shelf and go and retrieve a brother who is caught in a trespass? Have you ever seen the elements of the Lord's Supper, sacraments, walk out of a sanctuary and go find a brother or sister who's walking in sin instead of in the Spirit? Have you ever seen that happen? But I have seen many brothers in Christ, many sisters in Christ, who have loved people back into the family and gone to people who are estranged from the church. They're so brokenhearted. It has nothing to do with their sin. It's just their burden is crushing them to go and be used by the Lord to restore. Well, whose burdens are to be shared? Now, this is important. So listen carefully. All of our burdens. You say, well, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to tell my stuff to anybody else. Well, that's your prerogative. That's my personal preference. I don't want to share my stuff with other people. But you know what I've learned over the years? I express my pride when I don't share my burdens with others. And when you share your burdens with others, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships, troubles we faced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. That sounds like trouble to me, doesn't it to you? What if he had kept those things to himself? Would he have gotten the support that he needed in the burden-bearing believers in the church at Corinth? He would have cut himself off. His private prayer was not enough to lift the burden. And we know that Paul prayed a lot. And he had some brothers there, but they were all in the same boat. It was not until one of his sons in the faith, a man named Titus, came to him. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, When Titus came to me and my brothers, the depression lifted. Why? Because he came to bear the burden. Look for opportunity to bear burdens. Let us good, do good to all men while we have opportunity. Right? That's exactly right. This is what God wants us to understand. A man named Richard Lovelace says this, A vital means of grace are other Christians. God uses us to minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ through human friendship. 
The Bible says in Proverbs 17, 17, it says, A brother is born for adversity. Among other things, that undoubtedly means that when you're in trouble, and I know about it, if I'm your brother, I'm going to reach out to you and help you bear that burden as I trust the Lord. The Lord reaches out to others through us. Did Jesus bear some burdens? We know He went about doing good. If He lives in us, He continues to want to go out and do good through us. Yes, He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll take the burden off of you is what Christ says. And He does it through people like you and me. This whole idea of burden bearing is not the most exciting ministry, by the way. It's not very heroic to help people in ways, many of which are inconspicuous. No one will know about them except you as you pray for your brothers in Christ. If we were to go to... 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, this is what we would read. Paul said, I am certain that through your prayers for us, God will deliver us. Prayer is such a key form of burden bearing. Speaking words of encouragement. The Bible says in Romans 15, 4, that through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Is anyone in need of some hope this morning? May I tell you where you're to go to get it? There's only one place. It's to the Word of God. It's the encouragement of the Scripture which gives us hope. It's the voice of God mediated through the Word of God which gives us encouragement. Find words from the Word as you approach a brother or sister, presupposing that you are a Spirit-led person and also you have loved on that person because a friend loves at all times Proverbs 17, 17 says before it says, a brother is born for adversity. You've loved on that person. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, when we go to restore someone, friendship's pretty important to have been established prior to doing that. Because the person knows that you really care and love for that person. Another thing we could do, practically speaking, we could feed somebody. Help them clean their house. You know, people are depressed. They don't want to do that. They have no motivation. We could just visit with them and love on them by being present. Just be with them. Lots of possibilities. Perhaps you know that when geese fly in formation, it's not because they just enjoy it, although they do enjoy it. It's because there's great support in their flying in the V formation. And when one in their group gets tired or sick and has to fall out of formation, goes to earth to try to recover, there is always a healthy bird which follows the sick bird or the tired bird to the ground until that bird recovers. God's built this into nature. Why is it so hard for us not to do this when we have God's nature in us by the Spirit. This is what God calls us to in this matter. Well, let's finish by looking at verse 5. We're going to continue this message next week and hopefully finish through verse 10 next week. But let's look at verse 5. For each one will bear his own load. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. For each one will bear his own load. What's that all about? And some of the translations actually translate 
the word translated load in verse 5 by the word burden. They're two different words in the original language. And I appreciate the way the New American Standard has noted that with two different words. Remember, what is a burden that's mentioned there in verse 2? It's a crushing weight. But the word translated load is a word which was used for a soldier's rucksack or backpack. It's something that's manageable by an individual. So how do we reconcile these things? Here's, I hope, a way that you can understand. I hope I can help you to understand it. There are responsibilities of life which I cannot share with you. And I must give an account to God for them. I must give an account to God as to whether I've borne your burden. That's one thing you and I will be called to task about. When we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be evaluated. Did you restore a brother who was following the Lord and then fell off into a ditch? Did you restore that brother or attempt to at least? Did you bear others' burdens? These are things I cannot escape. Nobody can do that for me. But let me give you an example. I've talked about examples of burdens to be borne. But let me give you this example from my own life. A recent example, as recent as Friday night, I was talking on my phone. I don't think I have it with me. It's not a flip phone either. It's just a phone. I mean, it it's not a smartphone. I call it a dumb phone, really. And, it's, and I'm dumb, too dumb to know how to operate that all the time. So I'm talking to my son. And I finished the conversation and I... Punch the off button, but it doesn't go off. So I punch it, punch it, punch it, punch it, punch it. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to make a call tonight. I've got to go get a new phone. I mean, my mind just went wild. You know, I'm going to have to spend $15 again at Walmart to get a phone like that. <laughs> and so I remember what my daughter had told me one time. When you have some problem, take the back off, remove the battery, and then put it back in and reboot it. I said, ah, oh, thank you, Sarah, for teaching me that. So I took the cover off, and when I did, took the battery, and I dropped the battery, and I picked it up, and I started trying to put the battery in, and the thing wouldn't fit. I looked. I said, I know this was in here. I know I didn't pick up a battery that was not mine off the ground. All right? And I was thinking, Lord, would you give me somebody that I'm not too embarrassed to ask to help me with this along the way when I walk back? And I was walking into the little circle where I live, and I saw a neighbor. And his wife, they were walking, their dog, and I came up. And we exchanged pleasantries. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I bet she can fix this or he can fix it. And I asked her, and she said, I don't know how to do that either. I said, does your husband? And she said, yeah, he can do anything like that. So I went over and I handed it to him. And he looked at it, and this is unbelievable. He took the phone, and he just turned the battery over and put it right in <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> now, that was a burden I couldn't bear. <laughs> but he bore it for me. But you know, on the 8th of this month, my bill for that phone is coming in. That's my responsibility. I'm not going to go ask him to pay the bill. Right? That's my responsibility. In our walk with the Lord, we need each other. But... Ultimately, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He's going to ask us 
Were you a good steward of the gifts I gave to you and the opportunities I gave to you? Let me close quickly with a little story from the book of Acts 9. One of the great disciples in the book of Acts, her name is Tabitha. Tabitha died. Her friends in Christ were devastated. She had done many good deeds to them. She was like Christ in that way. She had used her gift of sewing to make garments for them. And then the Bible says this about her. It's, as I looked at it, I had never looked at it this carefully that I recall. But it, it touched me so deeply, the description of her. It says she was abounding in deeds of goodness. It's the same word, goodness. Abounding in deeds of goodness. And I looked at that word abounding, and you know what it means? It means covered with. That's what it means. It also can mean ripened what it means. The fruit of the Spirit had ripened in her life. She was covered with goodness. That's what Christ wants for us, that we be men and women filled with the Spirit of God, therefore full of goodness, full of gentleness, full of the Spirit, full of the fruit of the Spirit. God's calling us to do that today. While you have opportunity, those of us who are senior citizens, I even hate to admit it, but it doesn't matter. I am, according to what they say. I don't feel it. But this is what I know. I don't have as many opportunities as I once had. And I've thought about this for many, many years, decades, really. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here to worship you. Thank you that these people have made themselves available to this opportunity. And this opportunity would be incomplete for them if they did not in their hearts commit themselves as you give them opportunity to do, to do good in the power of the Holy Spirit as they trust in Jesus. Help us to restore our brothers and sisters who have wandered off the path in a loving way, Lord. Help us to bear each other's burdens gladly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.